The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Blue Cliff Record. Zhajo's, why not quote it fully? The pointer. Here is one who includes the heavens and encompasses the earth, going beyond holy and profane. On the tips of the hundred weeds, they point out the wondrous mind of nirvana. Within the forest of shields and spears, they decisively establish the lifeline of students of the way. But tell me, endowed with whose power can one get to be this way? As, I as, as a test, I cite this old case. Look. A student once asked Master Zhao Zhou, the great way has no difficulties, just avoid picking and choosing. As soon as there are words in speech, this is picking and choosing. So how do you help people, teacher? Zhao Zhou said, why don't you quote the saying in full? The student said, I only remember it up to here. Zhao Zhou said, it's just this. The great way has no difficulties. Just avoid picking and choosing. The poem. Water poured on cannot wet. Wind blowing cannot enter. The tiger prowls. The dragon walks. Ghosts howl. Spirits wail. Their head is three feet long. I wonder who it is. Standing on one foot. They answer back without speaking. <clears throat> so um, this weekend we've been doing an introductory retreat. And um, this case here involves Master Zhao Zhou, who's one of the really luminous teachers within the Zen tradition, a Chan master. And he um, came to enlightenment when he was 18 and died when he was about 120, so he spent a, a century in the Dharma. Um, he taught, um, uh, there were different ways that teachers emphasized teaching, and, and Zhao Zhou emphasized words, live words. Illuminating words. And he seemed to have had a particular affection for this poem, The Faith Mind, that is being quoted here, which was a poem written, one of the probably the most famous poem of the Zen tradition. And there are many teaching poems in, in Dharma, in, the, in Buddhism. We chanted one this morning in the Identity of Relative and Absolute. That was a poem written very early in the Zen tradition that became a, um, incorporated into our liturgy. And there are many poems, actually, that are function that way and that are chanted daily. So that's a practice you can do. Incorporate and include that in your home practice. The faith mind is particularly popular. People really like it. It's an excellent teaching. Um, uh, and so in Zhao Zhou, there are many dialogues, recorded dialogues of Zhao Zhou, where he was quoting from this poem and making teachings. And so the faith mind begins, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and 
undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then just hold no opinion for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. When the deep meanings of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed. And it goes on. And so this poem, as is true of Buddhist teachings, is really presenting the middle way. What is the middle way? Somebody recently asked how to live in a world that is so, in which there's so much pain and suffering, and to keep our hearts open. It's easy to get entangled in things. We know how to do that. It's easy to get attached to our ideas and our opinions and views. We know how to do that. It's easy to just shut down, go numb, give up, turn away. Those are the extremes, right? And they have lots of versions. But because they are based in an extreme position, they're out of they're not in alignment. They're not true. They don't express, they don't function, they don't come from a true place. They, they cannot lead us to a true place. And so the middle way is a revolution that the Buddha instigated over 2,500 years ago. In essence, saying if we don't grasp at this side and we don't grasp at this side, we will discover what the middle way is. And so to have no preferences, yet to know the difference between right and wrong. That there is a natural state that is free of denial and grasping, but that doesn't exclude which doesn't exclude, which excludes nothing. We can be free of having false distinctions, see the unity of all things, and at the same time recognize differences. They are not in conflict. We cannot cling to views and beliefs while being very committed in what we know to be true, but without being attached to what is true. picking and choosing, grasping and rejecting, pain and pleasure. In a sense, that's samsara. That's what comes easily. But it isn't easy. It doesn't make things easy. And so the student comes to Zhaozhou knowingly. The great way is not difficult, just avoid picking and choosing. But teacher, as soon as you use words and speech, there's picking and choosing. So how will you help people? The Buddha, by his own words, had this question, struggled with whether it would be worthwhile for him to teach knowing that he would have to resort to words, sounds, sights, taste, touch, textures, thoughts, ideas, to teach. And how to do that, given that those are the very things we get entangled in, and not just further entangle, but rather to use those avenues of the senses to liberate the senses, to liberate us from 
our senses so that we can live within a sensory world, but not be tethered. In the Lankavatara Sutra, the Buddha says, which is a very important text, a very important sutra in the, in the Zen tradition, also in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. It's very important. And in that, the Buddha says, <clears throat> the Buddhas of all times teach two ways, the way of instruction and the way of personal attainment. So the way of instruction means teaching the different texts and sutras appropriate to the minds of beings. This is what is meant by the way of instruction. So we engage teachings. We engage them at the level we're at, right? We work with a teacher who is teaching appropriate, if they're skillful, to the student, to where the student is, to what, to what they're able to hear and receive and put into practice. the way of instruction. The Buddha says the way of personal attainment is for practitioners who free themselves from the different projections that are the perceptions of their own minds. This means not falling prey to categories of sameness or difference, both or neither, of right or wrong, heaven or hell, all of the dualities, to not falling prey, to not be deceived, to not be seduced and misled, by the categories that we create that are nothing other than perceptions and projections of the mind. The teachings say that in order for us to have an experience, to know that something is, to come into contact with some aspect of the world, inside or outside, we have to have sense organs that come into contact with their field of functioning, a visual object for the eyes, an auditory object for the audible object for the ears, and so on. And there has to be consciousness. And if those three elements are not present, we will not have a perception. That object doesn't exist for us. It's not in our world. And what that's saying, the implication of that, or the profound truth of that, is that things don't exist by themselves. We actively engage in an experience of creating every experience that we have. The object is part of it. Our senses are not a clear part of it, but the senses are just fair witnesses. They just see, they just hear. Mind, though, is biased. Mind has ages and ages of history and associations and beliefs and ideas that are repeated over and over and beliefs that are part of that um, misleading or the functioning of that misleading. And so what that's telling us is that the experiences we have are empty Our perceptions are empty of any absolute existence or value. The object that we see doesn't exist in our world until we bring it into existence in our mind. And how does it exist in our mind? 
Well, that depends on how clear our consciousness is. So when our consciousness is, is overlaid with all of our conditioning and habit patterns and beliefs and so on, that's what we see. And so the object, in a sense, gets obscured or distorted or turned into something. But we don't see that happening, and so we just proceed on the assumption that what I'm seeing is what is. That's the truth. And that's the basis of every single harmful action in the world. Where a living thing becomes an object of our mind. Nagarjuna said, whatever is dependently originated, whatever arises in this way through these conditions, is seen to be empty. Conceptually, we can begin to understand that by reflecting on on what I just mentioned on those teachings. Experientially, it has to be directly perceived, directly experienced. Whatever is dependently originated seems to be emptiness. Being dependently originated, it is the middle way. It isn't inherently existing, but something's there. So the teaching of emptiness in Buddhism never denies the existence of anything, but rather just asks the question, how does it exist? What is the nature of its existence? He goes on to say, there does not exist anything that is not dependently originated, therefore there does not exist anything that is not empty in its nature. And the Buddha in his enlightenment realized that as the great liberation, when we realize that truth again and again and again. Then we become free of the ways, all the ways and the bases for which we attach to things and create all kinds of sadness. <laughs> and so here in this koan, it's taking up the use of language. The, the moment there are words in speech, there is picking and choosing, there's dividing, there's creating categories. There's this and that. That's what language does. To say that this is a stick is to say that it's not a baby. Or spaghetti. Right? Or you. That's what words do. <clears throat> and the Buddha emphasized the importance, the power of speech, and all the ways we can misuse it and create harm. But it wasn't, he wasn't just talking about morality, about moral actions, about um, creating harm or bringing forth benefit. He's also talking about that when we speak, we are speaking out of our experience. So our speech patterns, thought patterns, are conditioned by everything that we've experienced. And at the same time, so they're coming from our experience, but at the same time, as we speak, we're confirming, we're solidifying, we're reifying that sense of the way things are. So when we speak, it's not just going out there. It's not just that you're hearing it, I'm hearing it. And so it, in a sense, loops back 
and strengthens the basis of whatever those words are communicating. So if they're arising out of a false view, out of attachment, out of greed, anger, and delusion, then those words are not only based in my experience of that, in the ways in which I have learned and adopted that as my world and my mind, but it's also reaffirming that. So that puts a whole nother slant on the internal dialogue, right? That we so actively engage and habitually engage. In other words, it's not harmless. It's not that it has no effect. It's having an effect all the time. It's not neutral. And so it's not just a matter of creating distractedness, which is part of it. But in a way, more significantly, it's actually continuing to solidify a certain consciousness, a certain way of understanding ourselves in the world. And so then that begs the question, is that consciousness expressing something that's true? Are those words conveying to ourselves as we speak internally to ourselves what is true? Are they helping us? So that can be a whole other motivation, <laughs> right, to practice on and off the cushion. In the Lakavatara, the Buddha went on to say, he's talking about materialists, which really means when we experience the world just through our senses, and that's just the world. That's all it is. It's what we can see, it's what we can taste, it's what we can touch, it's what we can think, it's what is measurable. And so he says, materialists employ all manner of expressions, arguments, metaphors, and embellishments to attract and deceive people. Now, this was a long time ago. It was happening then, still happening. They do not accept the personal understanding of what is real. That is, they do not, they have not experienced, they do not accept what is true through their own actual experience. Nor are they aware that their projections of what exists are not true. They're not true, but they're not aware of it. And they here is all of us, right? So let's just make that clear, right? But in different ways, in different degrees, with different levels of not knowing, we are here in this hall because if we are a practitioner, to some degree we do know. We do know that what we have thought was true and enough and an accurate representation of the world isn't, can't be, because otherwise things would be going differently. And we certainly know that what we see happening in the world, in the minds and bodies of people everywhere, is not true. Cannot be true. So some of us have our eyes fully closed in the dark, some of us have our eyes half open in the dark, fully open in the dark, half open in light, and so on. That's 
the path. But to know, it's like to know that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. To know that you're caught when you're caught. To know that you're attached to something when you're attached. That's very powerful. He goes on to say, falling prey to dualities, to things absolutely existing this way or that way. You're with us or you're against us. You're right or you're wrong. I mean, it's interesting how prevalent hatred is. I mean, it's not interesting, it's a catastrophe. But how prevalent it is and that that for many is a position, is the position of being in the world. And that it's applied all over the place. And that hatred can be turned to the person standing next to me now if you do or say the wrong thing. So what kind of community is that after all? Falling prey to dualities, they confuse people and harm themselves and cannot escape their continuation in other forms of existence. Unable to understand what are nothing but perceptions of their own mind, they do not get free of their attachment to these projections of external existence. And so they engage in materialist eloquence and do not escape deception and confusion of the sorrows and afflictions of birth and old age and illness and death. And so to think about how the, if it's still true, that the largest body or demographic of people who are committing suicide are white men within a certain age category, where the world is not the way it's supposed to be, where they're not getting what they're supposed to get. Because people are ranked. We're not all the same. But the important, one of the important things here is that they harm others and themselves. That when we have anger, have hatred, that we direct towards others and believe in that and believe that the hatred is there, it's because of you. We don't realize that that is just a projection of the mind. It is something... I am making up. It's a dream. It's a fantasy. It's make-believe. Made real. Real enough to do damage. But what I very easily don't see is how much it's hurting me. Not the same, but hurting me. Because I am the one who is carrying this anger and this hatred. It's not out there. I am the one who is lighting this fire and burning it inside of me and staking my life on it. So how does that pain and suffering play out? When I don't know that that's what's happening and what I do know that's happening is not my fault, somebody else's fault. 
The Buddha said, even though materialist doctrines number in the hundreds of thousands, materialists only speak about the realm of sensory awareness. No reflection. No question. What's actually happening here? Is this true? Am I right? I love the bumper sticker. I could be wrong. (laughs) I could be wrong. Right? Maybe that should be on the front desk of every power-wielding person in the world. (laughs) Right? At the moment of their decision-making, before a vote, they chant, we could be wrong, we could be wrong. (laughs) To allow for the possibility to be humble, that has no room in a place of absolutes. That's why it's, it's inherently precarious. It's inherently fragile. That's why it has to be guarded. Right? That's why the slightest slip-up has to be extinguished, shot down. That's fear. That's anxiety. That is not confidence. So the Buddha says, it will only... Um, uh, he says, um, people who live, those who live this way will create schisms and their mistaken views of causation will flourish and be accepted by false disciples. When materialists thus create schisms using the expressions, metaphors, and embellishments of their beliefs and doctrines, they will do so based on their own reason, not on their actual understanding, not on what they've experienced to be true. And that is both the great power of practice is you know for yourself. And it is also the great challenge of practice because you have to want to know. And more than having to want to know, you have to then engage in what will bring you to that knowing. Lots of people say, "I, I want to have peace but are not creating peace. I want to live in harmony, but are not creating harmony. So that's the imperative of practice. That words and thoughts, as powerful as they are, have no inherent reality. When you say the word ice, is your mouth cold? So what are we to do with all of these words? I mean, Zen has quite a few of them. (laughs) I'm adding more. (laughs) That's one of the beautiful things I believe about Buddhism is that to recognize how we can misuse things, not because they themselves are at fault, we're just not using them well. And so in a sense, we misuse, we use poorly the power of our thoughts, the power of our speech, the power of our actions, the capacity, the ability of those incredible forces that are how we come into the world and create a world together to do something good. 
that we misunderstand or misuse our ability to care so deeply about something, but cripple it with our attachments. And so what do we do? Do we just turn away from those powerful streams of creation because they're too difficult, too challenging? Sometimes people will say that, that they're, they're, they don't want to engage because they're afraid they'll, they'll attach to things. You will. You are. It's already happening. <laughs> don't be afraid. Develop skill. D- understand. I mean, that's, we don't have to be afraid of ourselves. But we would do well to know how to meet ourselves. And then we don't have to be so fearful of others as we develop the capacity to meet them as they are. When we live by categories, constructed, fantastical categories, oppressive categories, life-killing categories. And through those projections, through that consciousness, that cloudiness, I look out and see someone. And what I feel, I have a reaction. I don't know them. I may know nothing about them, but I know them. I know I don't like them. I know they're not trustworthy. I know that they're dangerous. I'm not seeing them. I'm seeing my mind, but I don't see my mind. I'm not seeing that I'm looking at my mind. It seems like I'm looking at you. And so that's where practice, when we really understand it and live it, is itself compassion. It must be one of the greatest actions we can, gifts we can give to each other, is actually to see each other. And not just people, all things. And so, to be that person who encompasses heaven and earth, goes beyond holy and mundane, all of the dualities, and on the tips of 100 grasses, which often um, is an expression of delusions, our attachments. On the tips of 100 grasses, to not be deceived, but to see the wondrous mind of enlightenment, that rather than see it as obstruction, we see it as an opening door, a pathway. Why? Because that which seems to be obstructing has nothing in it that is inherently obstructive. When you feel pain, in your leg when you're sitting and you bring your mind into it with a mind that is directly experiencing that sensation and subject and object merge. You're not standing back. You have no idea, no concept. You're putting nothing forward. You're just directly experiencing that. Can you find anything in that sensation that is pain? What is it now? And that's our natural mind. But if that's so, then why do we have to do all this? Right? If it's so natural, (laughs) 
Why didn't it seem to be natural? Because <laughs> that's the nature of a habit. You know, if you the first time if you ever, you know, I don't know if young people still try smoking cigarettes, but when we were young and <clears throat> you know, everybody had to, you know, smoke or try smoking, you know, the first cigarette was like the body is saying, Are you kidding me? <laughs> cough, 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 cough. But if you keep doing it, the body adapts, right? Our genius, our curse. And before you know it, you have to have that cigarette. The cigarette it has become natural, right? Try and give it up, there's going to be a fight. It's kind of like delusion, right? It seems to just be the way things are. Give it up, there's a bit of a struggle with ourselves because it's what we know, because it's who I am. I'm that person who thinks this way, acts this way, reacts this way. It's not pretty, but I know how to do it. And in that, there's a familiarity, a comfort, a kind of laziness. In the teachings of the six existences, it's like that's like living in the animal realm. Just live by slogan. Have a belief, live by it. Don't question. Don't think. Don't think about it. Don't examine. Not allowed. This path will not open its door to you that way. We have to apply ourselves. And in the beginning, that can seem difficult, challenging, like giving up cigarettes, because we have habits. And habits seem to make things easy, they're convenience. I remember talking to a down in the city when I was in the temple years ago from somebody who was, we were doing, initiating the Earth Initiative. And somebody was in our group one day from another country, Europe, I believe. And he'd been in this country for a while and he said, I think Americans are going to die of convenience. <laughs> and maybe we'll impose that on others. And so Zhao and so he says, what about you, teacher? How can you teach? And Zhao says, why don't you quote it, say it, say the whole thing. And the student says, I only remember up to here. I don't buy that for a minute. This student was meeting the teacher. And this was how they wanted to engage them. They wanted more. Why don't you quote the saying in full? And the student says, I only remember up to here. And Zhao Zhou said, it's just this. The great way is not difficult. Just avoid picking and choosing. It's just this. What is that? What is it's just this? The poem goes on for many, many lines. Why does Zhao Zhou say, it's just this. Just avoid picking and choosing. So observe your mind in ordinary moments throughout the day in all kinds of circumstances. Do you see the mind grasping at preferences, reeling between loving and hating, disliking and liking, harsh judgments, 
praise, comparing, judging, endlessly. What happens when we encounter something that challenges an opinion, a view, ourselves? Right? Sometimes when we receive criticism, do we react as though our life is on the line? Like it's a threat to a kind of existence. Well, maybe it is. To an existence of the self that we cherish, that we hold on to, that we identify as me. If we really begin to study this, we'll see the power of what Zhao is pointing to. What is it to avoid preferences in a world where you have to make decisions all the time? How do you do that without entangling? How do we do that without entangling our minds in the idea of things being fixed? Which doesn't mean that Buddhism teaches that everything is relative. When we chant the the identity of relative and absolute. It doesn't mean relativism. It means things existing in the ordinary way. And the poem is describing that mind, describing that natural state, free of attachments, free of identifying, free of, free of solidifying, things, when you're no longer bound and confined by this, what we affectionately refer to as a skin bag, (laughs) then who are you? Then what are you? Water poured on cannot wet. Wind blowing cannot enter. The tiger prowls. There is no door. There is no entry and exit. The very idea of coming and going, beginning and ending, birth and death, is based on someone, something, existing by itself. Nagarjuna said, whatever is dependently originated is seen to be empty. That's everything. Check it out. Find something that isn't. How is it at such a time? The tiger prowls, the dragon walks, ghosts howl, spirits wail. Each of these beings fulfills itself, moves freely in its own way. The head is three feet long. It's quite an image, right? I've never, I have seen, but I can't remember the actual reference to what that was describing, but it, it's describing a, a being that you want to consider, not as a threat, but as magnificent, dignified, enlightened. And so then the poem says, I wonder who this is. Who is this that we're talking about? Who has this capacity? Who has such a mind? Standing on one foot, they answer back without speaking. As Bodhidharma said, the troublemaker in all this, after all, is you. (laughs) 
And so all weekend we've been focusing on these teachings, practices that really come down to just this. Making trouble to heal the world. Creating dreams to wake up from the dream. And so I hope that this practice this morning is helpful to all of us and helps us to clarify the path that we're on, which should be a path with heart. And it's not a path unless we're walking it. And if we're not walking a path that is a result of seeking and awareness and discernment and is worthy of your time and attention, then we're giving our attention to other things, some of which are important, some of which may not be. We may be following a path that may not be worthy of this precious life. And so to question, to examine, so how do we help people after all? May we spend our lives answering that question. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.